P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. I want to talk about the Treasury market and what happened to the foreign buyer. I am so happy to bring in Jim Vogel, interest rate strategist at FTN Financial, a fantastic analyst. I read his reports every day. Uh, Jim, I would love to get your take first off on whether we're starting to see foreign investors come back to the U.S. Treasury market after abandoning it uh, in December. Not yet on a large scale. What we're really seeing is some buying when we get these odd currency fluctuations, but it's not enough necessarily to say that the foreign buyers are back. So in other words, even though uh, there is a higher proportion of indirect buyers at some of the recent auctions, in other words, that's usually a category that includes foreign money, but also that includes hedge funds. Uh, It's been increasing, but this doesn't necessarily represent that China and Japan are coming back. No, not yet in the kind of support that the Treasury market became accustomed to over the last five to six years. Hey, Jim, could you just comment on what's going on with the U.S. dollar? And and, and am I correct in thinking that we saw this big surge in dollar uh, since the November uh, election? And that uh, after the new year, uh, we still saw some strength, but then there started to be conversations about, you know, how long things would take and taxes and interest rates. What, what can you tell us about the, the, the sort of trajectory of the dollar? Uh, the dollar is still going to regain some of its strength, but it was way too strong in December because for a while people feared that the Fed was falling behind the potential of the Trump slash Republican stimulus that everybody was talking about and became part of the Trump trade. And so on that basis, if the Fed was behind, then they would have to catch up, say, with a big increase or a quick increase at the March meeting. That thinking from December has totally wilted, particularly after uh, we saw average hourly earnings growth uh, revisions last week. So there's this debate right now uh, that's been going on, which is, are we headed toward an inflationary, reflationary time period, or uh, are we going to see Treasury yields go back down in the wake of disappointing growth? Where do you weigh in on this? Uh, We're certainly going to stabilize inflation once we move past a couple of other, uh, the next couple of months that are going to see increases in the indexes. And, but we're not really set for, say, the 10 year to go back to the 2% level uh, when people were less concerned about inflation. it's still an early days in the Trump administration, and the people that believe uh, tips are the right place to be are hurting this week, uh, but they have certainly been winning and are ready to commit more capital to that market. How much does the foreign bid that we were talking about earlier play into uh, your thesis? For the most part, do we see the overseas uh, 
fixed-income investor staying focused primarily in the European market right now. We do not see them as major players in the U.S., except when there's a risk-style event that may come over from EU banking or other matters such as that. So far, wait, 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 just, wait back sorry. up for a little bit. No, I, when you say that they're focused on the, on the on the EU, are they looking to buy German debt, French debt now that the yields have risen there? I mean, where where are they focused? Yeah, for the most part, they're focused on Germany and France, and then everything else keys off those relationships there. And and so the big news, uh, in addition to the Treasury rally this week, uh, is that both German and French uh, 10-year yields have returned to roughly their two-month average. Do you see the rally continuing? Uh, unfortunately, for a bit longer, yes, because uh, we still have to uh, regain firmer footing. And when we had the big sell-off in December, we totally bypassed this area between 230 and 235. Mm-hmm. There are no technical indicators for traders to go, oh, finally we've reached here and now we can start selling again. And until we just sort of leach out some of this dollar trade and a couple of other points, uh, we can stay below 237 on 10s. Uh, into next week. Jim, what do you think is uh, a likely outcome for year-end 10-year Treasury yields? We're still in the 225 to 250 camp. We don't see, to the extent that rates spike in the at some point as we look at Fed or possibly uh, stimulus from uh, the fiscal side in Washington, they could go up to say 260, 275. But we believe they'll come back down because there's people are looking at the uh, federal um, picture on a linear basis and not with all the different ramifications that follow any particular Washington um, fiscal move. The other uh, really big topic that people have been talking about in the bond world is whether the Federal Reserve will start to unwind their $4.5 trillion balance sheet. Uh, there's been discussion about whether they'll start doing that as soon as early, later this year. There's also been discussion about whether they'll focus more on their mortgage holdings or uh, their treasury holdings. Uh, where do you weigh in on this? Well, we believe that we'll look uh, far more at their treasury holdings. Uh, there are uh, $400 billion of, of treasuries that have to be reinvested in 2018. So that's the far more immediate um, uh, horizon that requires a policy decision. And we think they'll be looking at it very closely in the second half of this year to at least uh, communicate to the market a fairly detailed plan. Jim, is there any plan for if the economy is currently at its peak and will either plateau or we will see a slowdown? Uh, There is nothing in the broader numbers that indicate that we've peaked. The the sort of the worst trend that we've got is the fourth quarter uh, personal consumption grew at 2.5% versus the sixth quarter average of 2.8. But but that's still quite reasonable given um, the Fed's goal of of continued um, solid growth in the U.S. economy. That's still ahead of their formal forecast. So you think that things are kind of just going to be steady throughout the year. Uh, what do you think? What's, what's the, the biggest potential surprise on the horizon that could change your view? Uh, the biggest 
that would be a more coherent action plan from Washington, uh, where the White House and Congress are moving together very quickly um, to, say, accomplish, say, corporate tax reform in significant detail, not necessarily pass it, but have it out there on a 200-day calendar as opposed to what people like to talk about in terms of the 100-day calendar. Hmm, interesting. Very good. Thanks for pinpointing that. Jim Vogel, he is interest rate strategist for FTN Financial, uh, joining us from Memphis, uh, Tennessee. Well, we want expertise in the uh, world of uh, technology, media, We'll turn to only one person. Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. I urge you to go to BIGO on the Bloomberg for a variety of detailed reports and insights into a variety of industries. Paul Sweeney, where do you want to start? You want to do Disney or you want to do uh, Time Warner and the ATT combo. Well, I think Disney's usually the most uh, fun story Go to talk it. about. And, uh, you know, they had a kind of a mixed quarter last night. Uh, they beat on the EPS line, but they missed on revenue. And the, the ESPN numbers, uh, you know, were still a little bit soft and, uh, and that's kind of a problem because their cost base uh, continues to go up at ESPN. Sports rights continue to go up. In fact, they are in the first year of a new NBA contract, which is $600 million of incremental expenditures for them. So the cost of sports rights uh, continues to go up, and that's obviously, uh, you know, ESPN has, has the monopoly there. But uh, the, the revenue trends uh, remain challenged at ESPN. They're dealing with cord cutting. They're dealing with skinny bundles. And uh, they have to figure out a way to kind of uh, tap into the digital growth opportunities for ESPN. Well, but ESPN still has a very steady and uh, desirable group of viewers, no? I mean, this isn't exactly something that's going to go away. I know no, it's, personal it's, experience it's at by home. far the most valuable uh, cable network out there, and it continues to grow. Revenue and profits continue to grow just at a slower growth rate. Um, and uh, so, again, some investors have worked certainly, but it's, you know, it's, it's half, uh, almost half the operating profit of the Walt Disney Company. So it's a major driver of, of, the, of the company. So the question for the Walt Disney Company, like all c- cable networks, is, you know, how do they bring their content direct to consumers, uh, you know, through some type of streaming service. Um, it looks like people are on the margin cutting the cord. Uh, so you have to think about new ways to reach your consumers with your content. And, uh, you know, we've seen some examples uh, like HBO has taken HBO direct to consumers. Uh, it's called HBO Now, and you can subscribe to it directly. And you know, and we'll have to see, you know, what ESPN decides to do. You know, Paul, there's been some speculation that Disney might spin off ESPN as its own entity. What do you think the likelihood of that is? I think in the near to intermediate term, that's very unlikely. Um, this is still, again, half of the uh, almost half of the operating profit of the company here. So it's a major part of the business, um, and it's still a uh, extraordinarily valuable part of the business. It throws off tremendous amounts of free cash flow. Uh, but I think to the extent that they ever get to the point where you know the growth rate you know, turns uh, materially negative and it ends up being a real drag on the valuation, which I don't think it is now, then uh, clearly uh, there'd be an opportunity to, to spin this asset out and there'd be a lot of demand for that. But I don't think that's anything in the, in the near term. Paul, uh, I wonder if there's anybody that has access to the internet that doesn't either pay a telephone company or a cable company some money. 
We're talking about like cable operators, whether right. it's Comcast or Charter, uh, Spectrum, Verizon, so on. Right. Well, and, un unless you're a millennial. Uh, so the younger demos uh, are, in fact, are kind of cord nevers, if you will. They've never uh, signed up to any kind of paid TV service. Um, and so the question is, you know, how do you reach those people? Uh, and there's actually that, that percentage of the population is actually growing, the, the, the folks that do not pay. It's a small percentage today, but it's growing. Where so do again, they get their service? Where do they get their they, connection to the internet? Just public Wi-Fi? Oh, well, they'll get it. Uh, yeah, you're right. So they'll, they'll either get a pu public Wi-Fi or maybe they'll just subscribe to a, a standalone, you know, uh, 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 broadband connection through a cable company or through a telephone company. But the question is, will they pay for a big video product? And that, you know, on the margin, uh, the, the millennials tend not to be doing that. But again, if you're but a But isn't that what T-Mobile, I was going to say, isn't that what T-Mobile was trying to do by giving away, well, not giving away, but like getting you unlimited video for certain types yep. of video fare? Does Disney need that kind of more direct pipe into people's homes? I think they do, um, and I think they're moving, but they're moving sl more slowly than others are, and the reason they're moving more slowly is because they have more to lose. Uh, they get almost $7 per subscriber per month for 90 million subscribers to ESPN. It's hard to walk away from that or to even potentially cannibalize that business. So that, that's why they've been more reluctant to do that versus some other uh, companies. But uh, you, know, you, you take a look at AT&T. One of the big reasons that they bought uh, Time Warner is because they have you know so many wireless line and wireless customer relationships, but they don't have any content. And so that's why right. they stepped up to pay $85 billion for Time Warner. Well, talking about Time Warner, they have a, uh, a strategy that perhaps others will adopt of squeezing cable and satellite distributors for more and more money. And this is one of the reasons why they reported better than expected uh, earnings, correct? Yeah, the numbers came in a, a very, very strong for them, a good good quarter for them, which is nice uh, for AT&T. Um, the big driver for uh, Time Warner uh, was the fact that they did continue to have strong affiliate fee growth in their cable networks and they had about 14% affiliate fee growth year over year, which is by far the best in the industry. What was driving that is they just, over the last two to three years, renegotiated most of their uh, distribution contracts with the cable companies and the satellite companies, and they were able to get big increases. The reason they were able to get big increases is because they just invested a ton of money in their programming, particularly sports programming, uh, the NBA and the NCAA. Uh, so they put their money where their mouth is, and then they turned around to distributors, and they're like, okay, we're giving you better content. We want to get paid more. And they did. And Thank they did. you so much, Paul Sweeney, Director of North American Research and Media Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Select from over 500 fabrics to suit your personal taste. Shirts start from $85 and are delivered in just two weeks. With Proper Cloth's perfect fit guarantee, remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. Pim Fox, I know that you've been looking to uh, potentially buy a Jaguar Land Rover. If you want to do it, <laughs> you need to buy it soon because it could cost $17,000 more than it costs. Now, I, I want to bring in somebody who knows all about this, Alan Baum, principal at Baum & Associates, uh, a Michigan-based research firm that just did a study looking at how much auto prices could increase as a result of the border tax. Some pretty big numbers, huh, Alan? 
Yeah, and, and Tim, that 17,000 may not come to pass. That's what the numbers say in terms of our analysis. Obviously, companies will make their own decisions on what the, how they would price their product. Well, right, but the point stands that basically the border tax will make it a lot more expensive uh, for some auto companies, and more so than than others. For example, uh, Volvo or Mitsubishi or Volkswagen would face uh, a bigger challenge than, say, Ford or General Motors. Right, and it's based upon where they make their product, the price of the product, and how much of the product, even if it's made in the U.S., is imported. Um, and so Jaguar is obviously, and Land Rover are obviously on the far end there because their products are imported and they're high price. Well, Alan, for the record, I'm, I'm, all, I'm a public transport person, so I, I, I just gaze into the windows uh, of the showrooms. But uh, if I were to gaze under the hood, I might find that it, most of what's in there, at least uh, uh, some of it anyway, was, could be made in Canada and Mexico, right? Because uh, GM and other automakers are still facing this uncertainty because of the president's vow to institute this border tax. And from the Center of Automotive Research, they say that 76% of the seating and interior trim come from outside the U.S. Electronics, more than 61%. Engines, 60%. I mean, if you want a brake system, uh, chances are it's, you know, might come from overseas or somewhere outside the U.S. What are they going to do to change that? That's a big deal. And of course, it's based upon labor uh, and scale. And so you want to do, uh, you know, for the kind of investment that you're going to be making there, uh, you're going to make large volumes. And uh, so, yes, that is uh, clearly the the issue. The other thing that that our study showed is a company like Ford uh, that uh, makes small and mid-sized cars uh, in Mexico, as opposed to FCA uh, and, and GM, both make large pickups, uh, a company like Ford is better off because the value of the products they're shipping from Mexico is less than that of, of FCA uh, and, uh, and GM. So that's why you've seen Ford perhaps being a little more supportive of this concept, although obviously all auto companies would prefer to have their costs reduced, um, particularly their tax rates, uh, which seems to be something that's, that's being considered, uh, and not have their taxes increased in the form of this border tax. You know, I, I got to say, on, on one level, your study shows exactly why some people want this border tax, because it essentially would incentivize these overseas companies to either move jobs here, removing the potential tax, or else not be competitive in the same way. I mean, isn't that exactly the point? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, Mr. Trump is is uh, being responsive to the issues in his campaign. Uh, the companies, of course, are less excited by that because this is a global industry. They've been working on that premise for years. Uh, and if we talk about the Detroit Three, they are, in fact, making uh, fewer and fewer of their vehicles, not just in the U.S., but in North America, because they're looking at ways to improve their position uh, across the globe. And uh, uh, the companies that are based in Japan and Germany are, in fact, coming here to produce because they're looking to do the same thing except in reverse, and that is increase their position here in North America. Would that be a much more uh, intelligent way to move in your, uh, in your estimate? 
know, those have been the rules of the game. That's what automakers and, for that matter, uh, businesses across the board uh, have been doing uh, to to capitalize. I mean, you know, the obvious growth in the automotive market in terms of, of volume is not in North America, and for that matter, it's not in Western Europe or no, Japan. China. It's in China and it's in Eastern Europe, and uh, so that's that's where the development is coming. Now, the difference, of course, is the North American market, particularly U.S., remains incredibly profitable relative to those markets, and so obviously companies are very uh, interested and attached uh, to this market, which, of course, is a good thing for us here in the U.S. Particularly, I was just going to say, particularly if you're making pickup trucks and SUVs. That's correct. On the other hand, uh, you uh, you don't want to be making one set of products for North America and one set of products for the rest of the world. I, I seem to remember a bankruptcy or two uh, that happened in a few years back where that was part of the problem. Thank you very much. Alan Baum is a principal at Baum and Associates uh, based uh, in Michigan, doing a lot of research on the automobile industry. And uh, Lisa, it will be interesting to see how the uh, Republican tax plan uh, actually moves forward because they're getting a lot of pushback from, uh, like, for example, automobile dealers. Well, it'll be interesting also to see how much the foreign automakers have a uh, voice into the White House. Well, I'm going to I'm going to give a round that. number. Right. I'm going to give a round number. Well, almost round number. I, 152. That is the ranking for Molis and number. Company. It's not a round number. I said it's not a round number. 150 <laughs> maybe would be the round number, but it is. Okay, 152nd place Molis ranks in global Moelis, equity right? offerings. T- tell people what table. this yeah. Right. This is a boutique firm and somehow they managed to win the assignment to manage the most coveted IPO of this century, arguably. I want to bring in Ruth David. Uh, she's an IPO and deals reporter for Bloomberg in London. Ruth, how did Mollis get this? Hi, that's a great question. Since everyone has been trying their hardest to get on this deal, and I, and I think uh, you know, you've, you've heard of banks going and pitching this for months, and we had something last month saying that Everco and Molis had been shortlisted. But keep in mind that these are just the boutique banks that are getting on the mandate, right? They're also speaking to the global investment banks, so the Goldman Sachs and HSBCs and city groups of the world, to get more of them in. I mean, you're talking about a company that says it's going to have a valuation of $2 trillion dollars. So you'd imagine even if they list like a 5% stake, that's a 100 billion IPO. And as you said, probably the largest of the century. Um, It's going to take a lot of banks and a lot of people to get it over the line. Can you give a little detail of the people uh, involved in making this decision and uh, how this is going to affect the other uh, investment banks? I think investors are taking into account the fact that this is a big coup for Molis, and there's going to be, you know, I mean, it is the it is the government which will have a big say in who gets the mandates and what kind but of. But do roles we know the play. people, for example? I mean, do we know the key people involved in making this happen? I mean, this is a relationship uh, business. Yes, I mean, if you're saying is Ken Molis pitching strongly? Uh, yes, he <laughs> yes, and he's then. doing a great job at it. Well, well like, then, I just want to know who, like, more about him. Yeah, and, you want to know, and, like, who did he who did he have dinner with exactly? Oh, or this? just or because <laughs> well, I know a lot of the people came from UBS, for example, well, originally. 
Ruth, what, what I'm curious about yes. is what, how much are the fees potentially that we're talking about here? I mean, just to give a sense of just how much bankers were salivating over this deal. So typically, IPO fees are about 2.5 to 3% of the deal size. But that's just, you know, that's just the overall numbers and not something to get too excited about because state deals, and this is one thing that whether it doesn't matter what market you're in, a government deal is going to pay you much less than a private company. So it's more of the prestige, right? And it's more of them, like oftentimes the underwriters, so that would not be more less, but the other big banks manage to make money by getting commissions from the investors that they bring in. So you'd imagine that fees would probably be, on government deals, they're less than a percentage. And then they'd be split between so many banks. But this is going to help more less when they go and pitch for other roles. I mean, this is the biggest IPO, this is the biggest deal that they've ever done. Well, this is well, this is certainly helping their stock today. I mean, the stock is yes. up at you know a dollar twenty-five at thirty-six twenty-seven. This is a stock uh, that was trading you know in thirty-four. Now we're up to thirty-six. Uh, it seems that um, there's a model. Is it or a reason? Is it because uh, the uh, people behind uh, you know does Ken since he owns you know he's part of the owner of the of the company? Does that have anything to do with it? What made them select this particular uh, Ken Mollis? I think the it's not just I mean so I don't think it is just a relationship story I think it's also them looking at the other banks that were pitching and trying to figure out which one would be the best for what they want to do which one would be the would fit with what the Saudi government is saying best because you know for instance we know that Rothschild and Lazard have also been speaking to them and typically those are the kind of boutique banks that get in there but they weren't on this deal at all I mean even last week last month when we were talking about banks being shortlisted it was Everco and Molis so they probably wanted a bank that is not very well known and where they think even to an extent they may be able to avoid leaks and have them working in secrecy on this so that probably wasn't so successful. Um, and, and so now these banks are going to be working with the bigger investment banks when they come in and managing everything and trying to get this deal off the ground. But keep in mind, this is not going to happen till the first or second quarter of 2018. And that's an optimistic prediction. So the so great, I mean, the investors are uh, that are coming into the stock today are making a long-term bet. And, and uh, well, I guess we'll have to see what happens. You say that this won't uh, take place until the first quarter of, of 2018. Well, yeah. first, second, third, yes. But it's, it's not a 2017 deal is what Got I'm it. trying to say. Yes. Got it. Yeah, it's already priced in. Thank you very much uh, for illuminating all this for us. Uh, Ruth David, IPO and deals reporter for Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.